I do love the first Sunday in Advent. You know, it's not the decoration in stores, all those plastic, kitschy Santas, or the overplayed music on repeat in the background that let me know that Christmas is coming. Oh no. For me, the first true sound of the season are those opening lines, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It triggers the memory of so many Advents past and brightens my mood. And I can tell by your enthusiastic singing, many of you feel the same way. So here we are, first Sunday in Advent. We get four weeks of build-up to the big day. You can sense the anticipation in the kids' voices as they were talking about it. Santa, shopping, eggnogs, all out there. Advent's gradual increase of anticipation to the real focus of Christmas in here. Here, we'll have the chance to add a needed spiritual dimension to this most festive of seasons. Are you ready? I take from my text this morning the fourth verse of the 64th chapter of the prophet Isaiah. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who work for those who wait for him. Please pray with me. Holy God, who spoke through your prophets of old, speak to us now as we wait for your word, that we might be, bold, that we might be molded into your new creation and focus our hearts on the true message of the season. The word of the Lord came to me while walking in Montrose. It fell and shook my soul. I am tired of your deception, O my people. Exhausted from your lies. Every word from Washington, from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and from so many partisan websites is draped with deceit. The truth has gone away trampled under the foot of greed and self-serving. My will is not done, says the Lord. The poor are not served when tax cuts are discussed late at night without notice and with special giveaways scribbled in the margins. Instead, the armies of lobbyists fighting for special interests gain the ears of those in power. Men in suits with American flag lapel pins which boast of supposed patriotism, bow down to powerful interests only to multiply their influence. The rot runs deep in the soul of our nation. It does not go unnoticed. Parents of children with severe allergies pay many times more for EpiPens to satisfy the stockholders of a major company. The costs of production have not risen. The profits are already there, but it is not enough. There is no end to the greed. People all across the country are bankrupted with hospital bills. Premiums continue to rise. Doctors are at their wit's end. What constructive has been done? What can be done when special interests and greed are in control and not the fear of the Lord? Politicians talk out of both sides of their mouth. They use social issues to divide people. Fears are irrationally stoked. Fear of the other, the other team, the other side, and to what end? Where is the search for my truth, says the Lord? What of my quest for righteousness? 
Prophecy is a fascinating genre in the Bible. It really is. Don't you agree? In the traditional, in the traditional Jewish division of the Hebrew Bible, one-third of it is named after the prophets. We have the so-called major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12 minor prophets, figures like Amos and Hosea, Obadiah and Zechariah. Then there are the prophets in the historical books, Elijah, Elisha, and Nathan. What's remarkable about the prophets is the commonality of their themes. Again and again, the prophets denounce those in power. They denounce the corruption they see, and they rail against the abuse of wealth and the neglect of the poor. They prophesy against the enemies of Israel. They call for a return to the Lord, a return to proper devotion, where the Lord, the God of Israel, is the focus of our worship and not false idols. In no time during the church year are the prophets more prominent than in Advent. Advent is a time of waiting. Wait for the celebration of Christmas. We hear prophecies about a coming Messiah, an anointed one, and we pray that they come true once again. Those prophecies take center stage during these four weeks. And so, I'll take the opportunity these four weeks of Advent to look closely at prophecy and what it can tell us for today. And of all the prophets, it is Isaiah and his messianic prophecies that come up again and again during Advent. But the style can seem so odd, so old-fashioned, even perhaps off-putting. What to do with these prophecies? How do we make sense of them? How do we make them real for our lives, our situation, such that we can hear the good news of Jesus as just that, good news? The vast majority of scholarly literature on Isaiah divides the book of Isaiah into three parts, which correspond to roughly the times at which these parts of the book were written. More than a hundred years ago, scholars laboring among, amidst dusty stacks of books noticed that there were different historical moments that were referenced throughout the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of the book mention Assyria and are almost certainly set in the 8th century B.C., leading up to the fall of northern Israel. Israel is called upon to repent of its wrongdoing in order to avoid the coming catastrophe at the hands of the great Assyrian armies. Then in chapter 40, we see a stark shift. Part two for the scholars. The language from then onward is not about judgment, but about mercy. We hear these lines next Sunday, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. There's a talk of return from exile. The Persian king is mentioned in positive terms. Given that the Persians were a non-entity in the 8th century BC, and that Cyrus the Great and, the, and, and that Cyrus the Great's conquest of Babylon was the, was the catalyst for the return from the exile, these chapters almost certainly date from that later period. We see another we see another shift in chapter 56, part three for the scholars. Here, there's your critique, a critique of the ruling class and power those people that took over after the return from the exile. The background and situation are different here. Combined with these prophecies that call for change, for repentance, we also see prophecies that mention the advent of God's new kingdom. So for a hundred years, these divisions, these historical links, were the focus of Isaiah scholarship. When was the passage written? What was the historical background? 
What social situations gave rise to these prophecies? How did they get combined into the book that we now have? You can see scholars busily discussing this over port and black tie at a master's dinner at an Oxford college. Fascinating for scholars, perhaps. But is it relevant for you? Do you, sitting where you are in your home, care that much about the historical divisions of the book of Isaiah? More to the point of Advent, if the passages in Isaiah had very specific historical contexts, if they were talking exclusively about the 8th century BC or the mid-6th century or the late 6th century, how could they be prophesying about Jesus? These great texts we have for Advent, according to these scholars, have very little to do with Jesus or the Incarnation. Locked in their historical circumstances, they also have very little to do with either you or me. But starting about 30 years ago, a tectonic rumble began. Perhaps these new scholars noted, and the scholarly rush to historicize everything were missing some important elements in the text. Perhaps there's more here than we thought, more than just historical oddities locked in one time and place. Maybe there is a message for us and for you. Listen. Thus says the Lord, the fabric of society has been ripped from top to bottom. I see the problem. You are hopelessly divided. One camp does not speak to the other. Your eyes are glued to your Facebook feeds, which endlessly repeat the same message you have been fed for the past year. You live in different communities and different sub-communities. Too often, people in New York think nothing worthwhile could come out of Texas, and vice versa. The same is true for Conroe and Montrose. No longer is my word a unifying factor, says the Lord. To reach across the aisle assumes some humanity in the other. It assumes the other has good intentions. It assumes you know and understand the other. And all the while, the destruction continues. One man's tweets sends you closer and closer to nuclear war. You walk as though drunk towards the precipice of environmental destruction. Hatred around the world breeds terrorism and inflammatory retweets. Each week, the horror of a new mass shooting bodies strewn in rock concerts and dance clubs, in churches and schools. You wring your hands, you post to Facebook, you send me your thoughts and prayers as though that's what I want, rather than peace. You feel you lack power. The forces in front of you are too many. Turn back to your streaming videos and football games. Return to me, says the Lord. Acknowledge you have agency. It is there. It lurks in places you don't realize. Strive for righteousness. Search yourself for your transgressions. Worship the Lord in word and deed, so you may be whole again. These more recent scholars of Isaiah don't focus obsessively on history. They acknowledge that different historical circumstances were at play. Sure, there are three general divisions in the book of Isaiah. But more importantly, each layer of Isaiah builds on the one before. There are common themes that run throughout the book. When new prophecies were added, 
It was not done to deceive, to pretend as though the new word was actually an old one, but to reemphasize that the same word, which was in Isaiah in the 8th century, is in the successors of Isaiah in the 6th century. The prophecy is a living prophecy. It has power to inspire. You see the circumstances of a new day through the prophetic power of a day gone by. If you obsess over the historical circumstances of the text, if you lock the prophecies in their historical context, as so many scholars used to do, you run headlong into the fact that the texts have been read and used in synagogues and churches for the past 2,500 years. Faithful people of the past could see that Isaiah spoke to a specific time and place. Yes, they saw that there was a historical context there. But through the centuries, that didn't prevent Isaiah from speaking anew. One reason for the enduring power of Isaiah is that he speaks to real emotions and names them. Reading through Isaiah's prophecies, you can feel his anger at injustice. You can relive the experience of despair where it seemed like absolutely nothing you do made a difference. You can hear the call to return to the Lord and that call somehow resonates deep within a certain part of you. In those prophecies, you can hear that same voice echoing down the centuries. This is the enduring power of prophecy. This has been the lived experience of Isaiah for 2,500 years. Should not our scholarship wrestle with that reality and take it seriously? And scholars have done just that. They have discovered important truths for us. I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because all that the Lord has done for us and the great favor to God's people. There was a time in this country when men and women were sold as property. They lifted up their cries unto the Lord. It was a great struggle, a righteous struggle, and in the end, the bondman was freed. There was a time when workers had no rights, when children labored for 12 hours a day because their little hands could repair the broken strands of, of cotton on the spools, and the machines never stopped for the little children, and sometimes they lost their hands and their scalps. But when accidents happened in those factories, there was no recompense. There was no aid. There were no laws against that. But there are now. Remember the acts of the Lord. There was a time when no weekend existed, no overtime, no benefits, no health care, no housing standards, and apartments were so poorly built and ventilated that your family, stuffed into a small room, could catch tuberculosis, and as your little child coughed up blood, there was nothing you could do. But all that has changed. There was a time when drug manufacturers could make any claim they wanted for their drugs with no proof. You were just a sucker. Meat processors would throw rats and rat poison in with the meat that made sausages. If someone got sick, there was no one to bring a complaint to. There, were time, there was a time when the elderly were the poorest demographic of Americans. When elderly people who had worked their whole lives on farms and in factories without the benefits of a pension would live at the mercy of others because there was no guaranteed social general insurance. Yes, O oh Lord, we will recount the progress of compassion that has carried us to this day. 
Each step on that road was hard. It was a struggle. There were no giveaways. But the Lord was with the righteous. And we stand here in a new day. Prophecies are tricky. They look to the future, primarily. That is, after all, the main point of prophecy. But it would be a mistake to assume that prophecies predict the future. That's a common viewpoint, that prophets have their own crystal balls. A prophet has a window to the future, and that prophet is judged by how accurate his predictions were. Under this theory, the prophets we have today in the Bible were the prognosticators of prognosticators, the ultimate guys you put your money on when you pick a sports team to win, the Nate Silvers of religion. But this mentality is still locked in that historical mindset. You can almost see these scholars of old combing, each, combing, the, combing the record of each prophet to generate a scorecard. Ah, he was a B-plus prophet. He totally missed the Edomite rebellion. He doesn't deserve to be in the college Bible playoff. But is that really what prophecy is about? Is it solely about the accuracy of predicting a particular historical event at a particular time? When Mike Flynn, Trump's former national security advisor and Turkish President Erdogan's former paid agent within the administration, admitting to, admitted to lying to the FBI, which is a felony, former FBI Director James Comey tweeted out Amos 524, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Is the validity of Amos' prophecy limited to its historical context? Or was Comey justified in using it, even though he didn't reference the 8th century B.C.? Let's be honest. Prophecies are not about predicting the details of a particular historical events. I'll leave that to the bookies. No, prophecies are about imagining a different future. Prophets stand up and proclaim... The current way of things is not God's will. God's will is for something else. God's will is for righteousness, justice, mercy. Prophets show people around them what that future will look like. They paint the vision. They make it plain. December 1st was the anniversary of Rosa Parks' famous act to refuse to sit in the back of a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Parks' action pathetic. It named a wrong. Her actions stood up for what was right. And her defiance proclaimed that a new way was possible. At the time, no one would have expected things to change. Martin Luther King Jr., even when the Montgomery bus boycott began, did not expect to actually win. But Rosa Parks had showed a way forward. She was boldly marking God's plan for the future. She showed the vision and that vision of justice on the buses for the blacks of Montgomery kept people going through all the rain and the long walking. Month after month, threat after threat, they kept walking because of that vision. And that's what prophecies are about. They're about hope. Hope for a new future. But, but the way it works is by proclaiming a bold future of what the by, by proclaiming a bold vision of what the future looked like and then placing the stamp of God on that vision. And when people see God in that vision, they believe. The vision of the prophet draws people towards it. It beckons people into a new reality. In that way, prophecy doesn't so much predict the future as help bring it about. Prophets are visionaries. 
They lay out God's vision, and that vision, like a powerful magnet, pulls events towards it. But people have to believe in prophecy in order to live it. Listen to the voice of the prophet. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. Oh, that you might open our eyes, O God, show us that we might see. Let us see that we have been played. That when we look at what is happening, we realize that it has been happening to those in every camp. The divisions that exist between us are illusions, fostered by those in power to keep their power. When the powerful yell about fear, people get afraid, regardless of whether those fears are justified. Here's the vision. When workers thrive, companies thrive. When the poor are given opportunities and hope, it is good for the whole of society. When our criminal justice system does not stuff minor drug offenders behind bars, our whole society improves. When we can see racism for the damage it does, it benefits both Black Lives Matter and police departments. When health care is provided for all, the whole nation is healthier and more productive. O Lord of all, come down that we might see. Show those who hate LGBT people our humanity. Calm the fears of those who resist immigration and remind them that this nation has seen waves of immigrants over 200 years. The fears we hear now were fears they heard in the past. And yet those immigrants in time before led our nation to the place it is, and they constitute our identity. O oh God, force John Culberson to see the humanity of the dreamers. Let him put aside his fear of alienating certain constituents so that he can do the right thing. Lead us, O oh God. Deliver us from what we deserve if we stay blinded. Propel us to justice and right, your vision, your very presence, made manifest in Jesus, and that we look to that advent, and that we look to this advent gives us hope. As we go forth from this place, may the words of the prophet Isaiah ring in your ears. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who works for those who wait for him. I'm waiting. And I'll be waiting. I'll be searching for a prophetic vision this Advent. You...